When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to San Francisco. It's June 1972. The Rolling Stones have just touched down to perform their first gigs there in three years. The city had been the American epicenter of all that was vibrant and hopeful in the 60s, drawing the young and adventurous to its streets with the promise of a new way of living, a more compassionate way, a more humane way, a better way. Music played an integral part in this consciousness shift. Everyone who was there knew it. And if you weren't there, man, you should have been. There was still magic at the edge of the Western world then. A good concert would get people out of their cubbies where they'd been holed up high for days watching that record go round. Getting off on love or the airplane or the dead so very high that it took a full day to get it together enough to actually venture out into the city, where you had to deal with concrete realities like traffic lights and telephone poles. Freaks didn't own TVs then. They collected albums. If you closed your eyes behind Steve Winwood singing 40,000 Headmen or David Crosby's Guinevere, you could see all the pictures you wanted. So it was worth all the paranoia associated with going into the city, on the off chance that it would come together at the concert. Because if it did, and the band was right, and the floor wasn't too crowded, there was room inside the music for everyone. Enough space between each bending, soaring electric note for the whole audience to get together. Even though you were doing no more than dancing in front of the amps, or passing a joint to a guy next to you whom you've never seen before, you were part of the feeling. No one was there just to see the band. The stage was merely a convenience for those who were interested in watching. Everyone was there to be with everyone else. The great us, all right there, just hanging out. Incredible things happened as a matter of course. And all of it had to do with the mystical electric energy that the band on stage was pouring out and that the audience was feeding back. Those words come courtesy of Robert Greenfield, 
the legendary rock journalist, served as the dedicated Stones correspondent for Rolling Stone magazine as a 20-something in the early 70s. He was there with the band when they touched down in San Francisco in 1972. By then, the 60s were well and truly over, both literally and figuratively. It had been five years since the Summer of Love, that semi-mythical micro-era that stretched well beyond a season. No one could be sure when it began, but most agreed that it ended on December 6, 1969. This was the last time the Rolling Stones played in the Bay Area, at a speedway called Altamont. The concert left countless injured and four people dead, including a young man named Meredith Hunter, who was stabbed to death by members of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. It went down just feet from the stage while the band played on. Now, three years later, the Stones intended to make it up to San Franciscans for the death and destruction they'd left in their wake. But the Hells Angels were less likely to forgive. They blamed the Stones for the disaster at Altamont and the lengthy legal fallout that followed. Word on the street was the Angels aimed to take their revenge in the form of Mick Jagger's head. No one was sure if the rumors were true, but the Stones arrived in the city scared for their lives. They said as much in interviews with Robert Greenfield. Now, for the first time, he's sharing his tape archive, allowing us to sit in on intimate chats with the Stones in their prime. These tapes have gone unheard for half a century. Greenfield will also be joined by his friend and fellow STP tour mate, Gary Stromberg, the Stones' PR supremo who's represented a whole jukebox of the 20th century's greatest artists. My name's Jordan Runtog, and this is the Stones Touring Party. After touching down in San Francisco, the Rolling Stones and the assorted cast of thousands check in at the Miyako, a beautiful boutique hotel a short drive from the concert venue. Boasting green tile bathtubs with packets of crystals that turn the water different colors, it's definitely a step up from the previous hotels on the tour. The elegant lobby is crammed with endless suitcases and trunks, each with a unique number affixed to the side with yellow tape to identify the owner. But the man with suitcase number one, Mick Jagger, has a problem. He doesn't like the accommodations. It's dreary, he tells the STP tactical squad. He doesn't look mad, just disappointed. You can't open a window, he moans. It's suffocating. This was partially by design. For safety reasons, the stones are sequestered in their own building, a long and low barracks-like structure with all kinds of separate entrances that lock. It's perfect for security, but the views leave something to be desired. Jagger misses that essential vista, the bridge, the bay, the sails, and the sky. For the STP tax squad, this is a full-scale disaster, and they run in circles to make it right. Some place frantic calls to Marin County real estate agents in search of rapid rentals. Others make quick inspections of more regal hotels downtown. All this angst and activity results from the whims of one man. It reminded Robert Greenfield of a highly influential magazine profile by a fellow writer. Gay Talese, great journalist. His iconic piece about Frank Sinatra in Esquire, which was mind-blowing, the lead is Frank Sinatra has a cold. And you see that lead all the time now, but it's about how Frank, Mick, 
same guy, right? Having a cold impacted all of these people. It's the imperial, you know, command that we are not amused. I mean, anything you say will be taken to task. Lest you think he's a total diva, it's important to say that Mick was very aware of his outsized role in the STP hierarchy and his effect on people in general. By his mere presence, he changes any event that he's involved in. It isn't always fun. In fact, it rarely is. It's deeply unnatural to have your every desire, often muttered in the moment as a passing thought, taken as a direct order by a crew of producers. It might sound awesome, but in practice, the responsibility can be crushing. As a result, Mick took an almost paternal perspective during the STP tour. Here he is talking about it in 1972, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. I mean, of course, once in, on the road and being in the band, one's responsible to all the bands, which is really, really, very limited as well. I mean, you're married to them all, and you're responsible for them all as well. Their health, well-being, what you do affects them. If you step off the line, then it affects everyone else. If you decide to take a year off, it affects everyone else. If you decide to take three months off, it affects everyone else. Are you conscious of that? Yeah, I am, yeah. Once Mick realizes the stress storm he's unleashed among the STP tactical squad, he immediately begins to walk it back. Let's stay, he says. It's not so bad as all that. Both Robert Greenfield and Gary Stromberg insist that Mick wasn't unreasonable, despite his vaulted status. Jagger could always rein himself in. He was not imperious. He was never over the top. He wasn't that difficult, no, considering the level of fame talent and stardom. He was not difficult. He didn't make any mistakes. He God. was always in control. Never made mistakes. Keith would, was a... <laughs> walking... <laughs> he, yeah, he was just a walking blunder. <laughs> but Jagger was always in control. It's amazing. Even when he was loaded, he was always in control. He wouldn't make a mistake. As they settled in the rooms, the Stones were visited by promoter extraordinaire Bill Graham, godfather of the San Francisco music scene. Bill had last been heard from publicly calling Mick the C-word in the pages of Rolling Stone magazine following the fallout at Altamont, and a less-than-smooth gig they'd played for him in Oakland around that same time. Unpleasantries had been exchanged on both sides, but now that they were again bonded by business interests, it was time to bury the hatchet. Mick walks straight up to Bill, extends a hand, and greets him warmly. Bill accepts this as a tacit apology and responds in kind. After all, he hadn't exactly been Mr. Congeniality. Bill Graham is often the first to admit that sometimes there's no bigger jerk than Bill Graham. And the Stones also know they weren't faultless. The 1969 tour had been their first trek across America since the mid-60s. The live music game had advanced by light years in that period, and the Stones' logistics were a shambles. Altamont was just the most obvious result of that. As far as Keith Richards was concerned, no wonder they pissed off Bill Graham. I mean, got on very well with him. I mean, as, as he works his ass off and he knows we do, you know, and he knows that we were that much more vulnerable in 69 because uh, of such crappy organization, you know. Our fault, really. I mean, basically because it was our organization, you know. But we hadn't toured since the Teeny Buffer days, you know. And uh, things had changed a lot in those three years. And we had to find out, you know, and there was only one way to do it, and that was the way you went in the first way. You just have to go there and do it and find out, you know. More importantly, 
Bill Graham was one of the few trustworthy figures in an industry filled with hustlers and charlatans. As the Stones bassist Bill Wyman was quick to point out, the band knew a thing or two about those. They don't play fair, they don't play straight, and there's very few people that are fair and straight in the music industry that can get on very well, have a good name. They all all screw you, everybody. They all screw you for the extra $10, the extra $50, which fucks up their whole scene with that artist and gives them a bad name. And then somebody else comes along and just joins up with them and it goes on from there. And it happens all the time and I just can't understand it. In addition to being honest, he treated bands with respect. That alone made him a unicorn in music circles. Besides, the guy had class. The shows he produced had an unparalleled sense of style and gravitas. He made rock and roll professional, and that's not an insult. I've used a very simple analogy for many years in my relationship to an artist. You get two fillets cooked the exact same way, seasoned the same way. You put one on a paper plate with a plastic fork, a knife, the other one a piece of china with nice silver. Same piece of steak, somehow it tastes different. I made it a point to always be friendly with all of them, but never to say, Never to give them the feeling that I thought, well, I'm the producer, I have a right to break bread with you. I'm the producer, I'm, I have a right to come in your dressing room. Hey, I know I'm Bill Graham, but I know they're the Rolling Stones. I don't know what that means to anybody else. It does because I have self-respect, and I think we're good at what we do. With a handshake, the bad blood's gone. The past is erased. Now there's only the future. Like what to do that night. Bill, what's going on in town? Mick asks him. There's some good soul music on somewhere? But Bill's got bad news. It's Monday. The town's dead. Come on, Bill, Mick teases. This is your town. Let's get out and do something. Finding himself in the unenviable position of being put on the spot by his headliner, Bill places a quick call to Frank Werber. Frank runs the Trident, a Sausalito hotspot famed for innovative gustatorial offerings like sashimi, espresso, and a full juice bar. And its staff were just as famous. The Trident had the most beautiful waitresses on the planet. Frank Werber, the former manager of the Kingston Trio, also was a marijuana smuggler. He ran it. It was the hippest place to eat in Marin. He knew how to cater to a band like no one. Like the rest of the city, the Tridents traditionally closed on Mondays. Further complicating matters is the fact that Werber is currently serving a prison sentence for a pot bust. But he's out on furlough and willing to do everything he can to open his restaurant, just for Bill and the boys. And so it's settled. The Rolling Stones are going to dinner. But this isn't like any dinner you've ever been to. You better get ready. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. A private dinner for the Rolling Stones at the Bay Area's best restaurant may sound ideal, but it provides a unique set of emotional stressors for the STP support staff. To understand, you have to consider the unique politics of being around the band if you yourself aren't famous. Competition to get close to them is fierce, and to stay close is even fiercer. It's like a game of musical chairs with junkie-level intensity. Proximity to the Stones is a drug, and the drug is in short supply. If you don't move fast, you'll lose out. As Robert Greenfield writes in STP, Getting close to the Stones is like getting to see God and sleep with your favorite movie star at the same time. A melange of nervous emotions, both sacred and profane. There's no surer sign that your STP cred has slipped than getting shut out of a limo with one of the principal players. Hey man, try the next car down, we're full up. Yeah, I'm sure there's room back there. Devastating. High paranoia time. Lots of eye games. People are so intent on maintaining their own position close to the action that they're afraid to look an untouchable in the face for fear of contagion. Greenfield discussed this phenomenon with Charlie Watts back in 1972. Here he is, courtesy of the Northwestern University Archives. There's a competition to be with the, with the guys who are in the band, you know, I mean, there's a feeling that if, like, if I'm, if we go out to eat, you know, what did you do? I went out to eat with Charlie. Oh, well, you know, you did something, whereas if... No, we went out to eat with Andy next door. Wouldn't be the same, yeah. You know, which I thought was really strange. You know, like if I ride with Keith in the first limousine, so oh, far out. You know, if I, you know, who sits next to who in the plane? I mean, something I always felt. It wasn't like just people sitting with each other. It was always. I was never conscious. A lot of about games. That, so I just float about. A lot there's of games. There's always games. Mm. Even up at the Rolling Stone office. I mean, the magazine. You know, there's always games. You know, that's how you that's how you're going to play them or what you're going to do with them. Like a royal court, the pecking order was constantly shifting. Eventually, you just learn to live with it and take it day by day. 
it kind of sorted itself out. Keith and Mick always were separate, you know. And there were the little subgroups. Like if we were in a limo, it would, I'd be with Gary, yeah. Chris O'Dell, and Joe Bergman. We were in the support group. The artists okay. just seemed to know who, did, who they wanted to hang out with. I think it was whoever you were with in the moment, especially with Keith. I think anybody that you, if you weren't getting high with Keith that day, you were, you were in the limo with him. It, it was also how amusing you were. I was always conscious of this. If you were funny... And if you made Keith laugh, then he would want to hang out in with the you. moment. Whatever, in the moment, yes, yeah, it was like always was, in the moment. Whatever was worked in the moment. But you didn't have to get high to be with Keith. No, it's just like if no, you hit him with a funny line or said, so you could say anything to him. Like, what are you? What the fuck are you doing? And he got it. You know, he thought that was cool, right? He wouldn't say that to Mick. You know, so never. <laughs> Spending extended periods around a famous person is a funny thing. After a while, they stop being walking magazines or breathing album covers and just become another person. When or if this happens depends on the celebrity. But Gary Stromberg was surprised at how quickly the Rolling Stones became just the guys. For me, at first, I was very tentative about my place in this thing, but they were very easy to, for me to deal with, especially Keith. Keith just, you know, if, if, like Bob said, you said something funny, he was, you were in. Um, and if he liked you, you were in. That's I just right. felt very easy around him. Mick, I was always a little bit cautious about. Um, not that he was moody or anything, but he was just reserved, and you just, just felt that there were lines that you didn't cross with him. Despite months on the road and untold more working with him as his PR rep, Gary Stromberg never felt like he truly got to know Mick in the way that he did Keith and the rest of the band. Jagger always maintained a, uh, um, a distance. You, know, you could get only so far into who, him as a, his personality and, and really what drove him, but n no further. He never revealed uh, the real personal stuff. He's very guarded. He's just in control. I mean, he's probably very, very good at it to give the impression that you're seeing the real Jagger, but he'll only let you go so far. Even Charlie Watts, one of just a handful of people who shared the full scope of the Stones experience, would admit that Mick was sometimes hard to get a handle on. He's a bit of an enigma, isn't he? He is. He'd be, are you sure he is? He is an enigma. Difficult to believe, Mick. And I love him, you know. I like him an awful lot. I do, you know. I do like him awful. I respect him a lot as well. Apart from being, I respect him as far uh, further than being a performer. You know, I respect his words, and I don't mean written words. I mean talking to him. I respect him a great deal. I do a lot. But I mean, also know the thing that people go through when they see him. For some reason, I think I'm more impressive than he is. Well, do you understand why it's him and not you, and why it is that people? It's do? him. He's a uh, better-looking probably. As the fleet of limos took off in the direction of Sausalito, the waitstaff at the Trident are readying the premises, pushing tables together and generally getting loose so that when the stones arrive, it'll all be really mellow. You see, getting loose so that things will be mellow are key concepts in Marin County in 1972. As the evening wears on, the staff start to wonder, wow, are they really coming? Will they show? I wonder, wow, could they? Do you think? By the time the lights of the small fleet of limos appear on the bridgeway and turn down the hill into Sausalito, the expectation in the room is nigh on manic. 
then suddenly a voice cries out, it's them, they're coming. And everyone freezes right where they are. Luckily, they shake themselves out of it by the time the stones enter. Jagger surveys the scene and grins. He knows it's gonna be one of those nights San Francisco has a reputation for. Loose, laid back, mellow. And it was all for him. Recall the mere hours before, the Trident was scheduled to be closed this night. But, as has been well established, the universe bends around the stones. No matter what they did, they played by their own unique set of rules. Even something as simple as going out to dinner is a completely different experience to anything a normal human would recognize. Much like the queen, you do not carry any money. Never. Or need any money. You never have money. You don't have a wallet. You don't have a driver's license. I don't know if you pack your own bag. No, you don't do any of that stuff. <laughs> never saw it. You've never seen any of the stones with money at all because they never needed money. We would go into restaurants, and I'd be sitting at the same table with Charlie and Mick, and they're, they're human. they got to eat. They never ordered anything that was on the menu. Waiter would come over, and Charlie would say, Ah, uh, could you make me? And they would come up like, could you have a tomato with uh, maybe a... And there was, they knew who the stones were. And the guy, guy be writing like a maniac, you know. And I thought, whoa, this is the way to, you just, whatever you think. And they bring it out and say, well, hope you like it. You know, like guys in the kitchen are saying, oh, God, man, I never made one of these before. They didn't have, they weren't constrained by the menu. Okay, so. This reminded me, we, we went to dinner in St. Louis. I don't know why I remember this, but there was a dinner party was thrown for the Stones in St. Louis by some promoter or some big shot. And we had a private dining room, and it was really elegant. And elegant is not Stones. <laughs> and, and they sent over the wine, what do you call the... the the sommelier. Sommelier with, and he brings a presentation of this exclusive bottle of wine, and he shows it to Keith, and Keith asks for the bottle, and he takes the bottle, and he starts drinking out of the bottle, and, and the sommelier almost fainted when he saw it. It was Keith's <laughs> F.U. It's like, don't show me the label, bro. Show Mick. He can, I don't care what it is. <laughs> or it's here to drink, not to look at. <laughs> no glass, no need for a glass. No, yeah. I know how to drink this stuff. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> wino. Total wino stuff. Alcohol was there to be drunk. Well, he, he was also taking the piss. That's yeah, the English over. expression. Yeah. Like, let me see what I can do in this yeah. situation to make it absurd. You're making this formal, and this, we don't need all of that stuff. If I don't need a guy in tuxedo showing me a bottle of, and, and wanting me to look at the label. <laughs> if you're not going to pour it, I'll drink it. Nice. Yeah. And speaking of alcohol, booze history was made this night, June 5th, 1972. For it was there, at the Trident in Sausalito, looking out at the same view that had inspired Otis Redding to write Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, that the Rolling Stones discovered the Tequila Sunrise. <laughs> This potent mix of orange juice, tequila, and grenadine became the official beverage of the Stones' 1972 jaunt across America. According to lore, the SDP entourage passed the recipe along to every bartender they met while on the road. Like tipsy Johnny Appleseeds, they allowed the drink to flourish across the United States. Hey, this was at least a year before the Eagles' song. In his 2010 memoir, Life, 
Keith renamed the 72 track the Cocaine and Tequila Sunrise Tour. As ever, he's honest to a fault. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. The sidewalk outside San Francisco's Winterland Ballroom is choked with kids swaddled in sleeping bags and ponchos, thumbing through underground zines as they wait to see the stones. One guy even builds a crude lean-to shed against the wall of the venue. Bill Graham, as usual, is the consummate curmudgeon host, standing at the side door shouting at guests, Who do you think you are, Johnny Superstar? Front door. Do you understand English? Front door, like everyone else. Despite the damage that Altamont had done to the band's reputation among locals, San Francisco still adored the Stones. The radio network Quezon, whose airwaves had previously hosted the president of the Oakland Hells Angels slagging off Mick Jagger in the wake of the murder, ran a ticket giveaway for their concert at Winterland. The prize went to the most imaginative answer to the question, what would you do to get a pair of Rolling Stones tickets? The gentleman who won said, shave off all the hair on my body and smoke it. Ticket demand being what it was, the Stones could have easily filled a venue three times the size of Winterland. In fact, the last time they came through the Bay Area, they did, but now they opted for intimacy over avidity. 
They played two shows a day at Winterland, an afternoon show and then a show at night, okay? And this is the greatness of Keith and Mick. Their thing was always to go from big to small. That's what Keith called it. So in L.A., they played the Palladium. Incredible gig. Winterland was small. It wasn't Madison Square Garden. It wasn't that you know 18,000. It wasn't Seattle, Vancouver, these horrible arenas, cold, sound was spotty, as good as you try to make it. They loved playing smaller venues always. Winterland was an incredible place to see a band. There was um, no seating on the floor, but there were balconies. I went there a lot. So Winterland was a former ice skating arena that Bill Graham brilliantly inveigled his way into. Pete Townsend said it was the perfect venue. The size, the sound, 5,000 people, although Bill could put a lot more in, despite the fire marshals, <laughs> okay? The great story about the dead, Rock Scully is not with us anymore. The dead played um, two nights. They played one night, and Rock had his people outside with clickers, counting how many people were coming in, because they knew Bill was not giving them an honest count. Then the next night, there were, like, so many more people. And Rock said to Bill, Bill, what are you doing, man? There's so many more people. He said, no. He said, what are you talking about? No. He said, last night everybody was fat. Tonight they're thin. <laughs> the choice of venue is also an important gesture. Playing Winterland rather than a gargantuan antiseptic arena like the Oakland Coliseum was a small form of penance for the disaster at Altamont. Though they lost money, it telegraphed to San Francisco music fans, look, we're here to do this city right. But the atmosphere backstage is tense, and not just because esteemed peers like Neil Young, Jerry Garcia, and the Jefferson Airplane were in the house. Rumors of retaliation from the Hells Angels have reverberated throughout the STP echo chamber for weeks, if not months. No one's sure what's real and what isn't, but as bassist Bill Wyman told Robert Greenfield, it was never far from their minds. I'd heard rumors. I hadn't been sort of personally talked about it. I'm sure Mick had. But I heard rumors that uh, there was a bit of trouble from the Angels, and they demanded all the all the money for the wires. You know, how true it was or where it came from, I don't know. But I, but I just overheard things like that. I never got involved in discussions about it. Even the unflappable Charlie Watts was concerned. I never ever thought of the angels. I mean, they've never been a big thing in my life. But no fear they might come at you on this too. Yeah, of course, man. You did I'll tell you why. Yeah, I'll tell you why. Because I had thoughts about it. But I mean, uh, I, I, oh yeah, I worry, man. I don't want to get fucking blown up. It's so much to die me better. I'm, I'm one of those who me boots off. I think that we were aware of the potential for disruption on this tour, that things could happen. But they, I think they were as well prepared as you could be for the eventualities that, that would occur in terms of security. Despite this, everyone has their own particular paranoia. Mick Taylor was worried that hysteria, sparked by just one or two people even, would sweep through the crowd like wildfire. I was a bit worried about it, you know, because of what had happened before. But I, I, felt, I felt confident that um, we'd done our best to ensure that nothing like that would ha ever happen again on stage, because you can't be sure of 
things like that. You can't control situations like that. All you need is a few crazy people in an audience to trigger off a bit of panic and it just spreads like bushfire, you know. Bill Graham has spent tens of thousands of dollars on dozens of extra private cops and explicitly barred bikers from entering his hall. He was more concerned with what would happen after the show. What I did theorize is that they are bright enough not to just storm the front, but I also theorized that, that once they got inside, they could not show themselves or their colors because there's enough security around. My feeling was that a truck would circle the block and as the stones left, somehow three or four of them would get backstage. In other words, it would be done, it would be done like a bank robbery or a train robbery or a heist of some sort. Uh, I had this, I thought maybe they would kidnap one of them or uh, get, and this sounds crazy, but I did think about these things. Rumors that the Stones would get kidnapped, like a perfectly planned bank job in some foreign suspense movie, seemed a lot more likely than the rumors of them getting assassinated. After all, Mick Jagger was worth a lot more alive. The Hells Angels had made it clear soon after Altamont that a little cash would have sufficed in lieu of an apology. Call it a contribution to their legal defense fund. After all, one of their brothers, Alan Passaro, was taken to trial for the stabbing death of Meredith Hunter. Sure, he was acquitted, but hey, that didn't come cheap. Wasn't it the Stones' fault that they were in this jam in the first place? And if the band wouldn't fork over the cash, perhaps they could play some sort of fundraiser with the necessary coercion. These kidnapping threats, as well as threats of lawsuits, were taken so seriously that STP tour manager Peter Rudge flew halfway across the country mid-tour in order to meet with Hell's Angels representatives in New York City. Rather than a serious attempt to broker peace, it was mostly just an attempt to appease the gang and buy time until the tour was over. There was no deal going to be made with the Hells Angels. They wanted money. Yeah, they wanted. They were. It was a shakedown. It was a shakedown, and Peter knew that. He knew the litigation had no chance. It was just a hassle. I wish I could have seen that, though. I would have loved to have seen I'm sure the interaction the, between. Well, I'm sure the Angels couldn't understand half of what Peter was saying. Not because they're stupid, but his accent yeah. and how rapidly he spoke. He must have confused them. <laughs> totally. No, I mean, it's speaking to an alien. Can I say, even now as I sit here, the concept of the Rolling Stones doing a benefit for the Hells Angels? I mean, what are we raising money for? So you can buy more drugs and motorcycles? You know? Keith Richards was less rattled by the whole thing. He was embarrassed by the bodyguards who accompanied them everywhere they went. As far as he was concerned, a kidnapping attempt would be a rookie move. During the tour, before the tour, are you aware of any the specific Hells Angel thing about they're going to come after the band? Or I heard some. I heard about it in Texas. I don't. I think I don't see you know, you why the fuck for. I think that was just amateur dramatics. You know. A lot of people. Graham was expected. You know, had this fantasy of them coming at. You know, at Winterland. Obviously, some people thought it was very real. There's too many cops around for those Hells Angels to walk into something like that, you know. I mean, every town has got its fucking riot squad stationed outside the fucking auditorium and inside, you know. No fucking gang worth its sort is going to walk into something like that, you know. According to Mick, 
The vibes were bad, even with the absence of any specific threats. I was scared in San Francisco, they're not you, much. You were? Bit, oh yeah, everyone was. Because of the angels? Well, not specifically, no. No, not the angels. It was just, we were just kind of scared. Assassins or no assassins, there was a show to do. Two, in fact, that day. Once they go on stage, the stones are bulletproof. The band slashes into brown sugar and bitch, with the bass and drums coming together like a sledgehammer. The volume is so loud that it makes the crowd's breastbones vibrate like tuning forks, so that they feel it as much as they hear it and have to dance. Sparkles rain down off Jagger's face and hair, and the bells on his shoes tinkle as he leaps up and down. The set accelerates as soon as the stones go into Midnight Rambler, with Jagger the actor portraying Jagger the singer, and the band providing background music for the psychodrama. By the end of the set, Jagger is clinging to the tops of the amps and screaming as Keith rocks and stumbles through Bye Bye Johnny, ripping away at his guitar with his arm fully extended. It's a move that Pete Townsend of The Who first saw him do in 1964 and promptly stole, turning it into his trademark windmill. As they shift into their closer, Street Fighting Man, Mick brings a box of rose petals on stage, kisses them, and sprinkles them into the crowd, who show their thanks by throwing joints right back. With that, Mick whirls around, jumps, and vanishes amid a solid wall of applause. The crowd kicks and howls and wails and stomps on the floor, demanding an encore. But the band's already gone. They felt good. Even Mick Taylor, the new guy in the band the last time the Stones hit San Francisco, knew they nailed it. On the 69 tour, it was literally a new band, you know. None of us had played together before. We were all a bit sort of timid and we were feeling our way, whereas on the recent tour, everybody was much looser and more up front, you know. I also thought the music was much better. One show down and three more to go in San Francisco. Word on the street is no longer that the Stones might get killed, but that the Stones already killed, and the scalpers' prices rise accordingly. Even Bill Graham is happy. He bestows upon them the highest honorific in his vocabulary. Professionals. And those are few and far between in the laid-back Bay Area music scene. Here he is talking to Robert Greenfield in 1972 courtesy of the Northwestern University Archive. The Stones one time were the heroes of the revolutionary era. They are now the heroes of people who appreciate entertainment. The point I've harped on in one way or another for years and years is there aren't enough professionals in our business. There isn't enough of a professional attitude in our business. That when the public pays to see you, don't tell me you're just doing your thing. Don't tell me it's like being in the living room. You're not in the living room. You're at the Avalon, you're at Carnegie Hall. If you're walking on a stage and there's somebody out there you are paid to entertain, you may not like the title. One of the things that you are is that you're a professional entertainer. And you owe. It's not, it's, you can't say, like, too many musicians' attitude is, hey, man, you caught me on a bed like, like, dig it. What do you mean, dig it? I saved $8 on a part-time job or selling hash or whatever to come to see you. And I want to be entertained. That's, what, that's part of life. There's an exchange there. And I don't want to watch you knitting in your living room. Jaggy, you want to look at Garcia. There isn't a nicer person in rock and roll, but... Hey, I don't want to look at Jerry, you know, for, for more than 10, 15 minutes. Right. He ain't pretty. He's a great guitar player. And he doesn't dance. 
how many bands really entertain and know how? Know how? I don't say just as a producer. If I were a fan and I went there for a pound to see the Rolling Stones, I'd say, holy shit. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a special, joyous occasion. I thought it was. The next three shows were the same story. They were so hot that somebody called the fire department to say that Winterland was going up in flames. Five engines arrived with screaming sirens and flashing lights, which no doubt did wonders for those under the influence of hallucinogenics. The Stones had done what they'd set out to do, return to San Francisco as champions and win over the populace. Their whereabouts inevitably get around, and soon the lobby of the Miyako Hotel is packed with friends, fans, and well-wishers. Bluesman John Lee Hooker even paid them a visit backstage, singing along the Stones' boogie while Keith filled in on guitar. Bill Graham throws them a party at his favorite French restaurant, all gold and burgundy silks gathered at the ceiling and mirrors on the wall. Chilled white wine, escargot, guilt and continental service, the best. They're still riding high when they climb aboard their private jet, due for their next port of call, Los Angeles. As they took their seats, a beautiful woman in hot pants talks her way to the cabin door, for probably not the first time nor the last time on this tour. Gee, she says sweetly, could I ask the band for an autograph for my daughter? She loves them so. The woman oozes sunny California goodness. How could they resist? They invite her aboard. She makes a beeline for the obvious choice. Are you Mick Jagger? She asks breathily. He nods yes with a grin. Then her smile falls. She pulls a stack of papers out of her bag and shoves them under his nose. I'm hereby serving you, Michael Philip Jagger, with the following. He thought she was coming on to him or something. And then she hit him with the subpoenas having to do with the Hells Angels litigation against Jagger for Altamont. And that was a shock that somebody could get access to serve him. I just have this memory of when he got served, it was a sheaf of legal papers. And I remember them blowing out of his hand and flying all over the airport because he couldn't care less. The sweet lady is instantly ejected from the aircraft, rocketing unsteadily down the stairs with cries of, He hit me! He hit me! The son of a bitch hit me! Keith follows behind her, standing in the doorway with a stack of legal summons, which he scatters along the tarmac with a wave of his hand. This is problem-solving, Rolling Stones style. Alan Passaro, the Hell's Angel acquitted for the murder of Meredith Hunter at Altamont, was found dead in a California reservoir in 1985. His pockets were filled with $10,000 in cash. The cause of death was suspicious, but the case was never solved. Interestingly, just a few years before, in 1979, the Angels finally mounted their decade-delayed attempt to assassinate Mick Jagger. It failed spectacularly. The plan was to attack Mick while he vacationed in Montauk, Long Island where he was staying in a rented beach house belonging to Andy Warhol. The plot involved assembling a death squad, hiring a boat, and invading from the water like Navy SEALs. They would then detonate bombs they'd set around the perimeter of the house. The scheme was doomed from the outset when their boat got caught in a storm and capsized. The waterlogged angels barely made it back to shore without drowning. After that, 
They gave up on the whole revenge mission against Mick and vowed not to speak of it again. Mick himself didn't find out about this attempt until almost 30 years later, in 2008. It was a strange, albeit valuable, lesson. For the Stones and their associates, escaping the past would never be easy. Executive produced by Noel Brown and Jordan Runtop. Edited and sound designed by Noel Brown and Michael Alder June. Original music composed and performed by Michael Alder June and Noel Brown. With additional instruments performed by Chris Suarez, Nick Johns Cooper, and Josh Thane. Vintage Rolling Stones audio, courtesy of the Robert Greenfield Archives at the Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections in Northwestern University Libraries. Stones Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Looking for a fabulous fashion brand that celebrates you? Then look no further than Boston Proper, where styles are designed with you in mind, so you can look and feel amazing, no matter the day, season, or occasion. At bostonproper.com, you'll find fashion that knows you best. For over 30 years, Boston Proper has been the fashion destination for confident women who want to elevate their look with unique, sophisticated clothing at affordable prices. Visit bostonproper.com today. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.